Hello. Thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host this program with Carrie Figder. Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. My guest today is Ryan Muldoon. Ryan is assistant professor of philosophy at the University of Buffalo in the SUNY system. His new book is titled Social Contract Theory for a Diverse World, Beyond Tolerance. It's published by Routledge. Now, in this book, Ryan launches a sweeping criticism of social contract theory, both in its classical and its current formulations. He then proposes a revised version of social contract theory and also a reorientation for political philosophy itself. In Ryan's hands, social contract theory is not aimed primarily at the production and justification of principles of justice. So in that regard, it's a um, pretty radical departure from standard Rawlsian uh, views of uh, the purpose of social contract theory. Rather, on Ryan's view, the social contract is a tool of discovery um, by which we conduct an ongoing social experiment with respect to the terms uh, uh, of our social association. Now, um, it's a slender volume, um, but uh, it also uh, contains a lot of uh, original work. And Ryan's book is, um, it also covers a lot of ground, I should say. Um, So there's a lot to talk about. But uh, why don't we begin where we normally do, which is uh, by greeting our guest. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Bob. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thank you for joining us on New Books in Philosophy. Thanks for having me. Well, wonderful. I really look forward to talking about your book, but why don't you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So uh, I grew up in a, in a bit of a hippie town. I grew up in Amherst, Massachusetts. So uh, that's a, a five college town. So in a way, it's a sort of a, a, a factory town where all the factories are universities. So <laughs> uh, uh, lots and lots and lots of uh, very lefty sorts. Uh, the PhD per capita rate there was a little ridiculous. My substitute gym teacher had an English PhD in elementary school. Uh, <laughs> and Amherst is the kind of place where, uh, you know, at, at town meetings, we would pass UN resolutions and uh, we would help salamanders cross the road during mating season uh, to the point where we even, as a town, dug a tunnel underneath a road to let salamanders cross from one way to another. And uh, every year, people would help with lights to guide the salamanders through the tunnels. They would avoid getting run over by cars. Uh, was it so that was big a problem? Was were there a lot of was there a lot uh, of salamander carnage? Otherwise, by the time I was around, there wasn't much because this was a big deal. <laughs> this was a fun event that everyone would go to every year, uh, <laughs> helping the salamanders cross, or T-shirts made, and all this sort of thing. Uh, <laughs> but I guess at one point, it had been a big enough problem that. Uh, there's a lot of effort to save these salamanders. Uh, but it was sort of a, a, a unique place in that it was uh, kind of hyper-liberal in, in a very specific uh, sense of the term, I suppose, where uh, I grew up thinking that, for example, uh, economics was uh, how you justify injustice. And uh, so the political conversation is really skewed in one direction, but at the same time, it was a place that really welcomes at least a certain kind of diversity, right? I grew up with a uh, uh, kind of a deep sense that you know ethnic and religious diversity and uh, things like that were really to be embraced. It was uh, I grew up thinking that you know obviously no one in the country had any problem with uh, homosexuality or uh, or alternative lifestyles of any variety, and that was just fine and normal. Uh, so it was a bit surprising to me when I when I left this bubble uh, for college, uh, but the the thing that was important there is that um, in one sense my hometown was wildly embracing of diversity, but in another sense it was extremely hostile to it. Uh, uh, if you didn't kind of follow a fairly narrow ideological range, uh, you felt excluded. Uh, and uh, but on these other dimensions of diversity, it was uh, very proud of how much it embraced diversity. So uh, sort of unsurprisingly, diversity became really interesting to me. And that's 
uh, a thing that I've focused on in a lot of my my academic work. Uh, I was also fortunate there in growing up that uh, my public high school, because there's so many PhDs per capita, taught philosophy. Mm. Uh, and so I was exposed to uh, ancient philosophy in particular, looking at uh, Plato and Aristotle, and that really got me excited about philosophy itself. Uh, and so when I went to college in Madison, uh, I was lucky enough to be able to uh, keep pursuing philosophy while I was also doing some uh, math and computer science. Uh, and I was always excited about kind of value theory in particular, uh, but I got nervous about value theory at some point in college where I felt like it, uh, it was easy to have a really good sounding argument that uh, could hide a lot of assumptions. And so mm -hmm. I, I, I pushed away from that and I started just doing logic. I worked with Mike Bird in Wisconsin on uh, classical logic and non-classical logics and issues in vagueness and philosophy of language. Uh, but I was lucky enough that he introduced me to some of David Lewis's work on convention, and then uh, I found out about Christina Bicchieri, uh, which, who was at Carnegie Mellon at the time, and so I went to Carnegie Mellon to work with her for graduate school, and then I went with her to Penn when she moved. Uh, and once I got these sort of more formal tools, I got excited about value theory again, when I realized I could uh, engage with it more like uh, I did with logic, and I could feel like I was on better footing. Uh, and in graduate school, I was lucky to do some uh, philosophy of science as well, and that's really informed a lot of my work. Uh, so in a way, I started out being interested in uh, uh, a very particular sort of politics. Uh, I learned a whole lot of uh, interesting formal tools and then uh, kind of used those to bring me back to, uh, to the kind of core issues of, of uh, political philosophy that I was concerned about, namely, how do we uh, how do we get people interested in celebrating some kind of diversity? Well, wonderful. Um, that's uh, an oddly coherent um, <laughs> sort of life path. Uh, um, uh, but um, uh, uh, the, the book, um, I should say, reveals. Um, I think a, a lot of the personal investment in the issues uh, that uh, that you were just describing, um, especially some of the some of the ways in which you talk about Mill, sort of mm -hmm. suggest a real reverence. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, that's good. Um, well, why don't we why don't we then then turn to the book? Um, sure. So. Um, this so the book proceeds against uh the backdrop of um uh a certain sort of kind of criticism uh of social contract theories again both uh of the traditional um variety uh you know Hobbes and Locke Rousseau uh right. up to the present day including the the the, the still i think predominant uh Rawlsian uh versions um, which have their differences, of course, as you note. Right. Um, but uh, the, the 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 book proceeds not only by the book doesn't only begin with a critique of social contract theory as traditionally understood and contemporarily understood, but sort of traces out a kind of development of that criticism as the book proceeds. So why don't we begin there? Um, sure. What's the uh, where do you think the the social contract theory thus far? Uh, despite all the different variations of uh, social contractarianism, uh, where do you think it's 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 what do you think it's been missing? Uh, I think it's missing a few things, and I, I should say up front, I'm, uh, I think the body of work in social contract theory is really amazing, and it's been unbelievably attractive to me. And uh, it's only because I've spent so much of my uh, professional life thinking about it that. Uh, I started really nitpicking at it. And I was fortunate enough in, in grad school that Samuel Friedman was uh, on my dissertation committee and one of my uh, real mentors. And so uh, I hope I don't offend him too much when I give Rawls a hard time. Uh, but I think the core issue, uh, well, there's, there's sort of two big issues of social contract theory that I'm trying to track. So one is uh, all social contract theories uh, essentially are uh, are defending a particular set of principles, particular 
uh, concept of justice, a particular set of institutions that match that concept of justice, and they're telling us uh, that we're, uh, we ought to enter into a once and for all decision to bind ourselves to this particular contract. So that's, that's true of Hobbes, that's true of Locke, that's true of Rawls. Uh, and it, uh, when we teach this stuff, we note that you know, Hobbes is writing during the English Civil War, and he's trying to come up with a solution to that problem, right? the problem of seemingly never-ending civil war. Uh, Locke is writing uh, when he's looking to figure out how we can depose one king, but not all kings. Uh, and not have constant civil war, but get rid of this one guy. Uh, and then Rawls has a very different kind of problem, right? He's looking at uh, uh, an industrial society with more or less closed borders. We're trying to figure out how to best distribute uh, the economic gains from, from our economy across the population. And those are all good problems to solve, but they're not universal problems that pop up everywhere and always. And so I think we should be skeptical of any solution uh, that's derived from solving a particular kind of a problem. So it would be a mistake in my mind to take Rawls and, and use him to, to solve Hobbes's problem. Right? That doesn't get at what Hobbes is worried about. Uh, and likewise, uh, subbing Hobbes in for, uh, for Rawls's problem would, would be overkill for a variety <laughs> of reasons. Uh, and so I think we should be a little skeptical looking at social contract theorists that tell us that this is a, the account of justice or an account of justice that has some universal applicability. They're all uh, geared towards a problem. And so I think paying attention to that is important. That's one big issue with why we want to have this, uh, my approach is more dynamic than, than theirs. Uh, but another really core thing is just uh, outside of Hobbes, in a way, these guys just don't talk about diversity very well. Uh, if you look at someone like Rawls, who I have the utmost admiration for, and I think his work is amazing, but uh, especially if you look at, say, theory of justice, his strategy uh, is well won up front. Uh, we're only talking amongst liberals, and that's that's perfectly fine assumption to make, but that's taking away even attempting a problem like Hobbes is. Uh, but then more basically, uh, the way we think about individuals uh, for Rawls and for many contemporary Rawlsians is that uh, we've abstracted away from all of our uh, features uh, until we're kind of bare, rational, reasonable agents. So this is an intentional strategy on Rawls's part, of course. Right? The, the function of the veil of ignorance is to remove the stuff that Rawls thinks is morally and politically extraneous to get to the point where we're dealing with just the core moral issues. But he thinks that by doing that, uh, he's gotten us to a point where we're essentially uh, one agent that's thinking uh, through problems carefully. But I don't think there's a reason to think that that's what we get as a result of it, kind of that sort of extraction. So one big issue here is that uh, Contemporary theorists uh, uh, kind of get rid of diversity by just pulling back until we start looking the same. I think that's that's kind of uh, failing to appreciate the seriousness with which we need to treat diversity. Uh, another sort of concern is a, a basic knowledge issue. Uh, uh, Rawls and Rousseau. Uh, uh, especially, I think those two, uh, assume we, we know enough to get it right when we're coming up with a particular contract. We, uh, we have all of the relevant information such that the body of reasons from which we're working is relatively complete. So I, uh, I get criticized sometimes when I say something like this because uh, uh, people point out, well, of course, we can add more reasons. But that seems sort of external to the work. So we can as philosophers come up with more reasons that ought to be plugged into a Rawlsian framework, say. Uh, but if we're within the Rawlsian framework and we're one of those agents making choices, we have a fixed set of reasons that we're working from. And we're being asked to make a once and for all choice about the arrangement of our social contract or the, the selection of our principles of justice. Uh, and so I think that's a, 
a rather bold claim to say that we have all of the relevant evidence that we need to assess uh, what the consequences of a particular set of rules would be, uh, or whether we're factoring in all of the, the relevant features of justice. And I, I suspect that we're not. We seem to keep coming up with new areas uh, that we have failed to take into consideration before that need to be folded into our broader consideration of how to live together. Right. So, so um, let me just sort of uh, ask one question. So one of the um, uh, one of the um, something I kept thinking as I was reading um, uh, through the book, especially the um, uh, some of the, the the parts where you're you're, you're criticizing Rawls, is um, I thought that it, this was an ingenious uh, on your part kind of reversal or, or a sort of judo move. You know, Rawls's famous line against the utilitarian is that the utilitarian can't take the distinctness of persons seriously. Right. <laughs> and as I was reading, I'm like, oh wow, this is a this is an attempt, or, or this this the force of this kind of critique is that. Um, the Rawlsian might take the distinctness of persons in a certain sense <laughs> right. uh, seriously, and, and the utilitarian can't. But Ryan's argument, as I was thinking to myself, is the Rawlsian can't take um, uh, the, the, the maybe we we'll say just broadly speaking now the cognitive distinctness of person seriously right. enough. Would that be fair? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. So uh, Rawls especially in theory of justice, clearly has this problem, I think. Uh, in theory of justice, uh, uh, he assumes that we are sufficiently alike if, if we count as rational and reasonable, uh, that we're even uh, dividing up the relevant ways of thinking about different institutional arrangements in the same way. But that's a, that's a big assumption. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in political liberalism, Rawls, I think, is more aware of this sort of a problem, and I think that's where... Uh, uh, he gets uh, a less definitive kind of answer, right? He becomes more aware that there can be pluralism over justice, and, and what do we do about that? Mm -hmm. I think in, in that book, he throws out a few uh, potential approaches, and I think Jerry Gauss is a very nice paper laying out the different sort of models that, that Rawls uh, uh, offers in that book. Uh, but I think in political liberalism, he's really struggling with the idea that, oh, wait, uh, if I take diversity seriously, I don't, I don't get the stuff that I thought I got uh, in my previous work. Uh, and that's an attempt to try to claw much, as much back as you can. Uh, but absolutely, I think the, the core worry uh, with Rawls, and I think this uh, has carried over for people that are Rawlsians rather than Rawls himself, uh, that we fail to appreciate the, uh, the broad ways that people can be cognitively quite different and come to rather different views about uh, uh, how they perceive the problems around them. Uh, and failing to grasp that, I think, is a fundamental uh, failure in, in political philosophy that's, that's kind of uh, ignoring at least half of the problem that political philosophy is aiming to, uh, to adjudicate. Right. And there's a, a, a further, I think, sort of sociological dimension to this uh, yeah. in the book, which is that um, the issues uh, for um, uh, political philosophy, for thinking seriously in a philosophical way about the terms of our social association, um, diversity is not, um, not easing. Is right? right. Sociologically, the problem is becoming all the more pronounced. Is that right? For sure. Um, uh, yeah, no, I think that's right. So, uh, if you look at kind of revisions to the Rawlsian framework, in some sense, the, uh, the goal of the revisions is to further narrow the project. Uh, so uh, someone like John Kwong, whose work I think is fantastic, uh, has a, a similar proviso in his, uh, in his work that not only are we just talking about to liberals, but we're talking amongst a certain kind of public reason liberals. So we're narrowing further the scope of who we're trying to engage in this sort of justificatory process, but if the uh, if we're if the point is to provide a justification, we either want to justify to more people uh, to make the stuff that we're ending up with uh, more convincing, or we're getting kind of more purity as, as we go down uh, in a narrower dimension. Uh, 
but then we fail to get anything that looks like uh, a universal application of principles. Uh, so that, that problem, I think, is uh, lurking in the background in a lot of contemporary work where we're, uh, we're around a lot of Rawlsians, so we're just talking to other Rawlsians, uh, uh, not noticing how much conceptual framework we're just taking for granted. Uh, and that's, that's a problem if one of the goals of this work is, is justificatory. Right? You need to be able to convince more than, than just other uh, people who already uh, take on a lot of your assumptions that are, that are controversial assumptions. Right, and I guess that there's even just sort of a philosophical um, pathology, maybe, um, that if the answer to every objection to the view is just further, you know, more tightly circumscribe the the audience to whom the right. view is addressed, <laughs> then uh, you might wind up with a with a pretty sturdy looking view, uh, but you got the sturdiness in all the wrong ways. It seems. Right. Yeah, <laughs> no, and it can be a, a very beautiful view. Right, you can make it. Uh, the structure of it really pretty and elaborate, and and uh, once you accept the foundations, then for sure you get the edifice. Uh, but yeah, I, I think you're you're giving up a lot to do that. So um, your um, your proposal then, your it's what we might call a reorientation or a revision of the social contract uh, doctrine, um, is designed explicitly to. Uh, address some of these um, uh, concerns uh, and shortcomings, maybe we'll call them, uh, in the more traditional and familiar versions of the doctrine. Um, but you introduce um, three new ideas. Um, maybe we'll say, in, in one case, maybe it's a it's a fresh take on an idea that's already present. Um, uh, you think that a revised social contract view has to introduce the idea of a perspective. Um, from which parties to the um, contract uh, reason from. Um, you want to, so that's one. You want to also um, uh, replace uh, a reasoning with the aim of consensus or unanimity um, uh, model of what goes on uh, as a means of forging the contract with a bargaining model. Um, and then um, thirdly, there's a new question then, uh, that is that the, 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 the answers that the old social contract views give to the question of motivation can't be answered in any of the old ways anymore. We have a new right. uh, worry about uh, motivation. Um, so maybe one way to go would be to sort of just ask you to run through these things. Uh, sure. So let's, let's start with what, a, yeah, what is a perspective uh, on this new version of social contract theory and why is it needed? Sure. So uh, what got me thinking about uh, this problem is a really uh, uh, wonderful and, and already quite famous piece by Amartya Sen on the, the equality of what. And mm -hmm. what, what's going on in that, uh, it's from the, this is Tanner Lectures, uh, what's going on in that piece is he's arguing that you know, all the major uh, moral theories uh, have some way in which they're they're paying attention to equality, but the core idea is that equality by itself is just a measure of something. Uh, the work is done by putting in the something, not the the idea of the measure itself. And so, in this uh, really wonderful essay, uh, Sen points out that well, uh, it gets egalitarians have a particular account of how to think about equality. Uh, that might be in terms of, say, some kind of material outcomes, depending on the, the kind of egalitarian. Uh, libertarians have a different account of equality that's going to be grounded uh, in the, uh, the kinds of liberties and freedoms that you might have. Utilitarians are going to have a different account of equality, namely everyone's utiles counts for the same. Uh, and uh, from any one of those uh, theories, you can argue that the other two fails to take equality seriously because they're not taking equality seriously on your grounds. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Sen does a really nice job of illustrating this problem. And then his proposal is, uh, let's not use those three, let's use capabilities instead. And I think there's a lot to be said for the capabilities approach. Uh, but he's uh, spent the first half of the paper building up this case for why uh, these different moral theories aren't uh, engaging with each other in the right kind of way, 
And then his solution is just to switch to a, a fourth moral theory uh, that does the work. Uh, I got interested in trying to think through that first part of the problem that Sen sets up so nicely. And uh, so I combined this with some work uh, by Scott Page, who's an economist and political scientist at Michigan, uh, who's done some really nice work on, on perspectival diversity. And I, I uh, uh, use roughly uh, Page's framework with a few modifications to think through what a perspective is. And so here's the idea on a perspective. A perspective, at its most basic level, is just a categorization of the stuff that you see in the world. So um, how you divide things up. So as a, uh, a silly example, when you go into the grocery store, you can think about uh, how you organize the stuff that you see. One perfectly good way of doing it is you have meat, vegetables, fruit, dairy, and grains. Right? That's going to cover the range of stuff that you see in the grocery store. But another perfectly good, good way of dividing that stuff up is, uh, well, some stuff is fresh, some is frozen, some is dried, and maybe some has gone rotten. Uh, another perfectly good way of doing it is by color. Uh, or you can do whether things are halal or not, or kosher or not, or vegan or not, uh, and so on and so forth. There are lots of different ways you can categorize the stuff that you see in the grocery store. And the core idea is there's not the neutral way of doing that. Right? There's not one obvious categorization that all of the others are derivative of, uh, or there's one that's value neutral. All of them are going to be good at answering certain kinds of questions that you might have of the things that you find in the grocery store or enable you to solve some problems uh, with the things you find in the grocery store. But no single categorization scheme is going to be good for all of that. So one option would be, well, let's just combine all of them. So you can ask whether it's, uh, you know, is this a, a halal, low-fat dairy product? Uh, that hasn't spoiled, and so on and so forth. But the trouble is we're just cognitively limited. There's going to be a, a pretty hard constraints on how many different bits of evidence we can track at a given time about something, how many different characteristics of, of things in the world we can pay attention to. But the trouble is this is just the stuff in the grocery store. This is the easy part, right? We're not even getting to hard things like how to live together in society and what kinds of problems we're supposed to solve. And even in the in the grocery store, though, isn't there a further complication that, um, from some perspective, certain things will not count as food that are sure. recognizable as food from other yeah, from so others' perspectives? You won't think of as food, or you'll just not even bother considering. There's lots of distinctions you won't bother trying to make because it's in an irrelevant category for right. you. Right. <laughs> uh, and and hey, that that helps us. We're in the grocery store. I don't want to have to think about all the stuff that I don't need to care about. That it would be it would take way too long to go through the aisles if I had to worry about all these things independently. Conveniently, I don't, so I leave it out. But that's true of us with our moral and political lives as well, right? So uh, uh, a difference I have with the, the page view is the way I, I imagine a lot of this stuff. When we think about, say, our political problems is that uh, the the kinds of social issues that pop up are what I would label a a high dimensional object. So there are uh, lots and lots of possible uh, distinctions one can draw and categorizations one can make. And uh, any of our perspectives uh, are just uh, a projection. So like a mathematical projection from a higher dimensional to a lower dimensional object. Which means that even if uh, I'm getting real things about the world, I'm getting a skewed take on the real things about the world. So uh, think of as a just an illustration of this. Uh, imagine we're we're in a room and floating in the middle is a is a cone, and I'm looking straight at it and I'm unable to move around. So I just see a triangle there, and you're staring up from underneath it, and all you see is a circle. And so we we start uh, discussing the thing in the room, and I'm talking about how it's triangular in various ways and. Uh, you think I'm crazy and you start telling me how it's circular. Uh, the trouble is we're, we're both partially right and we don't know that yet. 
And we can't derive the other person's views from our own, right? Because a projection loses information, uh, we can't simply just say that we can translate one perspective to another. Uh, each one is potentially uh, carrying unique information. And so a, a challenge for us in our uh, political life, in our uh, uh, space of political disagreements, is figuring out how to take advantage of the fact that we have different sources of information about these problems uh, while getting around the fact that we have different sources of information. So we might mm -hmm. see the problem very differently from each other. We might think we're talking about a very different problem and we might be seeing very different outcomes or solutions. So uh, an important upshot of this sort of view is that when we think about political disagreements, uh, it's not just a disagreement about values, and it's not just a disagreement about kind of conflicting preferences. Uh, it's more fundamental than that. It's a disagreement about how we're looking at the world. And I take it that um, just like in the, the case of the grocery store where you might have two different perspectives which don't have a, a in every case, a common conception of what counts as food. Um, right. There might be in the, well, there, there will be in the political case on this view, cases where it's not just that we have different perspectives on a problem and we're not able to translate the one to the other and maybe we're not able to see certain other perspectives as perspectives. Um, maybe that we're just, we're, our perspectives don't allow us to talk about the same thing things as problems. Would that be? Yeah, and I think we can see uh, elements of this in our normal real-life political discourse. So uh, if we take everyone to be uh, uh, kind of honestly describing their views, if we look at something like, say, the Affordable Care Act in the United States, uh, liberals tend to think of this as, well, finally, we have this, uh, this right to health care that should have existed for a long time. Uh, uh, this is really about kind of uh, some combination of distributional concerns and fulfilling basic obligations to citizens that it was shameful that we weren't doing before. Uh, but if you look at a more conservative argument, well, uh, there have been concerns that, well, this is a unique imposition uh, on us where we're now required to enter into a market. There's no other market where we have to participate in. Uh, so this seems like a significant uh, imposition on my freedom that I all of a sudden have to participate in a market that I never had to before. Uh, likewise, uh, uh, this did affect the tax code a fair amount, such that uh, if one's view is that uh, taxes are impositions on one's liberty, uh, this is a fairly large imposition on uh, a certain class of citizens' liberty uh, for others. Uh, so uh, these objections that uh, one side is raising uh, have nothing to do with the positive effects that the other side is raising. Mm -hmm. uh, they're identifying very different problems. They're identifying uh, the, the Affordable Care Act uh, across quite different dimensions. And so uh, you might think that some of this is opportunistic on one side or the other, uh, but that we can develop an account uh, clearly where they're just talking past each other. That's important. It's not just that they have different preferences on the appropriate tax level or they have different preferences on uh, the mechanism by which the, uh, the healthcare system works. Uh, they're describing the world differently. And then it's only once they have these different descriptions that they have these different preferences. And so... Uh, that's just one example. There's, there's plenty in our normal politics that have this sort of flavor. We're just, uh, we're not engaging each other on the same terms. Right. And I guess that this is also um, one other sort of occasion for, uh, for thinking that um, the, the later Rawlsian view now, the public reason sort mm -hmm. of element of the view, um, despite the fact that it's motivated by something that Rawls identifies as uh, a fact about uh, pluralism among reasonable persons. Right. There is a, um, uh, you might think, an insufficiently pluralistic right. commitment driving it, which is that um, there's a perspective from which um, 
any of us could reason uh, right. and a perspective from which um, – uh, all of us, if we are reasonable, <laughs> right? Again, you've got this constraint. You, know, you got how constrained right. is that class of people going to be, right? There's a perspective from which um, all of us could recognize public reason as an act of reasoning, right? <laughs> That's a, a pretty big assumption, right? Yeah. So if if I'm right that there's no correct way of looking at the stuff in the grocery store, uh, it's going to be hard to build a case that there's a neutral space of reasons, right? That there is a, a single perspective from which we can engage in public reason uh, such that uh, we're getting uh, – uh, we're treating everyone on, on equal and fair terms. And this is the, the core worry. So if we impose a, a, essentially a foreign perspective on others if they're going to participate politically, well, we're, we're burdening them significantly, not right. only uh, – do they disagree the terms on which they're engaging? It's going to be hard for them to translate their concerns into this supposedly neutral view. Right. And once more, if we're calling it a neutral view, if we suppose that such a thing exists, this gives me a, a new cudgel against my political opponents. If they fail to uh, kind of follow the, the quote-unquote neutral discourse, I get to uh, ignore them for for failing to do what they're supposed to do, for failing to engage in this uh, neutral space of reason. Well, you could do more than just ignore them, right? You could even uh, you could charge them with incivility. Right. I can I can accuse them of being unreasonable. Yeah. yeah. But the but the whole point is that uh, I've I've uh, cheated them out of being able to participate politically. Right. Right. So then it looks like. Um, and this will this will be a nice segue into the second sort of pillar, uh, Ryan, of of, of your reorientation, because it looks as if then uh, once we introduce the idea of um, perspectives, as as we're calling it, it looks like one of the things that then has to go, like once we add that to the social contract story, one of the things that is going to have to go is the idea of um, uh, the contract being the product of a shared um, uh, activity of reasoning. Right. Um, and so uh, your view has a bargaining model uh, uh, towards reaching uh, the, you know, I don't want to say the end of the contract or the product sure. of the contract because it's an ongoing thing on your view, but the contract is struck in the cases where or the moments where there is a striking right? uh, by means of some bargaining rather than right. than collective uh, or sort of jointly reasoning. Right. No, that's right. So uh, consensus views and, and public reason uh, – so I think many Rawlsian-style public reason views have this consensus goal, right? We're going to uh, engage in public reason until we share the reasons and share the uh, – uh, the outcome, right? We, we share the, the final principles that we're arriving at or whatever it might be. Uh, this is amazingly onerous, right? Not only, like it's, uh, it's one thing to come to an agreement about what we're going to do now or what, what rules we're going to follow, but demanding that we uh, all share the same reason for doing it is just extraordinarily demanding and it's ignoring any kind of diversity. So I'm, uh, I very much want to push away from that. Mm -hmm. So what I, I do that in two parts. So prior to the bargaining bit, uh, uh, I wanted to see if there are any fixed points across perspectives where people agree. So um, if for independent reasons, people come to the same conclusion on, say, why it's wrong to murder, that we can just use that as a fixed point. Uh, and the more uh, d different and diverse perspectives that share in a common uh, rule or, or a common uh, moral belief should be quite suggestive that that's a robust belief that we can we can rely on, right? It's it's hard to come up with lots of different ways to get to the same place, uh, and so that's uh, a fixed a set of fixed points that if they exist uh, constrain what a bargain might look like. So uh, we can't bargain over the things we already agree to. Uh, but the goal in the in the bargaining sort of procedure is. Uh, that, yeah, we're looking for something that approaches more convergence rather than a consensus kind of approach. And <laughs> uh, the core reason for this is that uh, when we're engaging in this process of trying to develop 
what uh, principles of justice we want to rely on and what institutions we might want to rely on, what, what bundles of rights that we're looking for. Uh, there's no reason to think that we agree on the shape of the problem, nor is it uh, reasonable to assume that we recognize some of the consequences of, say, a particular rights bundle. And so we can't rely on something like consensus because I'd be having a consensus over stuff that I can't see. Mm -hmm. Whereas what's interesting about bargains is that I don't have to have all these sorts of robust agreements to make a bargain. Uh, I don't have to know much about the other person uh, initially anyway with a bargain uh, to come to an agreement. We don't have to share the reasons for why this is a good deal. Uh, we can have our own private reasons for it. And so bargaining uh, is the, uh, I think, only tool that gives us the space to have this sort of cognitive diversity that are represented by these perspectives, uh, such that we can still uh, agree to something, but we are agreeing to it for kind of uh, uh, individual reasons as opposed to shared reasons. So we can, uh, we might see very different features of the agreement, and I think that's fine. Uh, we might value different parts of the agreement, uh, but the the thing we agree to is on our own terms, not on some neutral terms or someone else's. Uh, a useful feature of bargains that I, I try to take advantage of, given that this is a indefinitely repeated thing, is that bargains give me an incentive to try to figure out more about uh, the perspectives of uh, uh, my compatriots. I have reasons to get better at understanding what they want, because the more of what I can give them, the more they'll give me. Right? I, have, I have a motivation for uh, I'm trying to satisfy their interests. But an uh, interesting consequence of this sort of approach is that uh, there's an extra sort of source of grease for the wheels to coming to agreements. Namely, there's all kinds of concessions that I can make to you uh, simply because I don't know that I'm doing it. Uh, if your perspective and mine uh, are non-overlapping in various ways and there are things that you want that I just don't register, um, I'm happy to concede that to you because I don't notice if I'm doing it or not. Uh, and in the same direction, you, uh, you for me. Uh, you can focus on the stuff that you're worried about, and I can focus on the stuff that I'm worried about. Uh, and we'll, we'll come to con some uh, convergence view of what the, uh, the rules are for now. Uh, so uh, since we can repeat this process uh, indefinitely, uh, we don't have to be stuck with a bad set of rules. Uh, but we can come to find out how those rules behave. So, what does the um, what's the role of the view from everywhere? So, this view from everywhere is what comes before the uh, the bargaining. So, this right. is uh, meant to find our our fixed points. The idea of a view from everywhere uh, is that since we can't engage in in the view from nowhere sort of position, there's not a uh, a neutral. Uh, space of reasons that we can draw from. Uh, instead, what we want to do is kind of construct a view from everywhere. So I, I liken it to uh, uh, looking at kind of Picasso's early work compared to cubism, right? So say even blue period uh, Picasso, he's privileging one way of looking at the subject and uh, describing that for us in the painting. But the, the goal of cubism is to show what that, what that uh, subject is from a whole bunch of different ways of looking at it, from, uh, from any given perspective, is what the, uh, the cubist is trying to do there. And so the view from everywhere is an attempt to capture that idea. Mm -hmm. So how do we uh, consider different uh, uh, moral principles or political rules um, from everywhere at once? So uh, the structure of, of that sort of position is that I follow a modified version of the Condorcet jury theorem. So rather than letting it run on individuals, I have it run on these different perspectives. So uh, where there's robust agreement across perspectives for some particular uh, 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 rule or, or set of beliefs, uh, I take it that that is uh, a pretty robust thing to hold on to, to rely on in the bargain. Uh, 
where there's a great deal of divergence, it just tells us that uh, we're seeing things quite differently right now, and we don't uh, we don't yet know much. Mm. Uh, but if everyone of the same perspective shares a particular moral belief, that doesn't tell us anything either, right? That could just be a, a, an artifact of flawed reasoning shaped by a particular perspective. Uh, just sheer numbers of people that hold a view doesn't tell me much uh, because they could all be making the same error. Uh, but if uh, people across multiple perspectives come to hold a view, that tells me a great deal. It's for kind of a uh, uh, no miracle sort of reason. It's really hard for everyone to, uh, through different chains of evidence, end up in the same place mm -hmm. and have all of them make different independent errors that takes them to the same spot. Right. So, okay, let's, let's try to, let me, let me try to sort of put it, put it together a bit. So we've got to introduce this idea of perspectives um, that requires an adjustment away from sort of um, reasoning models of what goes on towards striking the, the contract, making the contract or building the contract towards a bargaining model. Um, now, the third move then is the, is the motivational part, um, right. which uh, you've already hit on a little bit where there's an epistemic um, a dimension to this, but there's an addition to the epistemic dimension. You think that there's actually an economic benefit. Absolutely. So, uh, importantly, and I think one of the reasons that I, I started working on this project from a theoretical perspective is it's... It's funny to me that if you open up an economics textbook, uh, literally you have to have diversity. For a market to function, you need agents that are different somehow, whether it's in uh, abilities or endowments uh, or preferences or information. If they have the same stuff, you're not going to get trades. You're not going to get uh, an economy moving. And, you know, uh, the the greater the level of diversity as you add in more people, uh, the more productive your society can become with a, a better and finer division of labor. Uh, but then if you open political philosophy books, uh, diversity is the thing you're trying to uh, get rid of or mitigate or deal Manage. with somehow. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. managing diversity. So. Uh, the way I learned about it, you know, liberalism is the tool to deal with diversity. Uh, but actually, I think importantly for a bunch of uh, liberal issues, uh, diversity is the engine that solves these problems. Diversity is the thing that gets a lot of this stuff going. So for one, uh, certainly in a number of different ways, diversity gives us enormous epi epistemic benefits. So... Uh, uh, I mentioned some of this already, where if you have uh, multiple perspectives all pointing in the same way, uh, that can be remarkably uh, reliable in a ways that uh, everyone sharing one view and coming to the same conclusion just doesn't give us that uh, mm -hmm. protection. But also just the, the kind of fundamental tension about around being people around being around people that are different from you uh, gives you reason to kind of come up with better ideas. So there's uh, pretty robust historical evidence for uh, one of the causes of success in the West is uh, they had a whole bunch of small political entities that uh, were competing with each other that were didn't like each other and wanted to come up with ways of outdoing each other. That generates a, a bunch of benefits uh, that generate a lot of science. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's real core uh, uh, economic and material benefits and, and I think cultural benefits of, of diversity, namely uh, diversity uh, helps us across the board in an economy. So if I'm, if I'm a philosopher and I can choose between living in a, in a world of all philosophers or a world with tons and tons of philosophers or a world with not a lot of philosophers and a whole lot more car mechanics and plumbers and English professors and, and what else, um, it might be fun to have conversations in the all philosophy world. That's be I don't think so. <laughs> uh, it's good for me if 
people want to be something other than my chosen profession because it makes it easier for me to get a job. It gets easier for me to get paid more for that job. Uh, and the more people that are doing other jobs, it makes it cheaper for me to buy all sorts of goods and services that I might mm -hmm. want. I want people to have different interests. I want people to have different skills. Uh, and uh, the degree to which uh, perspectival diversity and skill diversity are correlated uh, tells me something about how much I want to have uh, these people around, these other kinds of people around purely for selfish material reasons. So uh, I think when we when we put diversity on the uh, on the forefront, it becomes clearer the range of areas where there's significant gains to trade from having other people around us. So there's, I think, huge gains to having uh, people of different cultural backgrounds around, one for just uh, the quality and variety of art and food and, and music and all sorts of things. Uh, but also just the, the bare idea of, well, uh, the more people that are different from me, the, uh, the cheaper my goods and services become, the more in demand my services become. So it, uh, it works out better for me. I want these kinds of people around. This is tempered a little bit if we have uh, diverging preferences. Uh, but so long as uh, the social surplus is increasing at a, at a reasonable rate uh, and the epistemic benefits are increasing at a reasonable rate, there ought to be some way of, uh, of resolving that kind of attention. Right. So I guess this is the, or the, the key respect maybe in which your version of the social contract theory is, as your subtitle has it, beyond tolerance, right? Tolerance sure. is, as you see it, um, do you call it a, a begrudging virtue? Or, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so this is a, um, a social contract, a view of the social contract theory that aims to take diversity seriously by both in its structure and in its broader social implications. Um, Encouraging people to see diversity as itself a valuable thing? That's right. So uh, I think we have a, a, a flawed tradition in the West to some degree of how we think about diversity. So if you look at you know, Locke's letter concerning toleration, uh, it's sort of a second best theory, right? It's, it's saying uh, us Protestants can't pick which Protestantism is right. Uh, and we take turns getting in political power to suppress the other guys. And since we're about equally strong, let's stop doing that uh, and just agree to disarm and have a separation of these sorts of things. Uh, but obviously, we still can't trust Catholics or atheists uh, because they're just too far out, right? Well, right. And there's uh, also the element in, in Locke that, um, you know, if you could force conviction, that would right. be okay, but psychologically, you can't, you know, conviction doesn't work that way. Right, yeah, we can't, like, we can get people's outer proclamations to be different, but not their inner proclamations, and that's exactly, that's a problem. Yeah, too bad, right? If it were yeah, possible, totally. it would be right. okay. <laughs> and so, I mean, this basically creates an idea that diversity, like, diversity is a problem to be managed, and tolerance is the thing to manage it, uh, and so it's a pure burden on you as a citizen. It's... Uh, an imposition on the stuff you want to do otherwise, but you just can't. And the trouble with that sort of view is that might work if our differences aren't so big, but as you kind of turn the dial up on the level of difference or the amount of difference, uh, I get less and less interested in in keeping this burden around. Right. I get a lot more interested in say, let's just get rid of the other people. Yeah. Uh, or separate ourselves out somehow. And I think we're seeing that in a lot of political movements right now. So uh, there's hugely increased anti-sentiment, even anti-refugee, uh, uh, anti-immigrant, anti-refugee sentiment in, in the United States and in Europe. Uh, there's a rise of, kind of right-wing nationalist parties that uh, are aiming for some kind of cultural purity. Uh, and if you listen to them, it's structured around the claims that They've lost things for, out of multiculturalism, and they're not getting anything out of it. Right? It's, the burden has become unacceptable, so let's stop doing it. Uh, the sort of view that I've uh, uh, put on offer is aiming to say, no, there's even if you're kind of a selfish jerk, there's a bunch of reasons for why you want to be around people that are different from you, even if you don't like them. Uh, you get enormous benefits from it. And so... Uh, 
you should want to seek this stuff out uh, uh, because you're gonna you're gonna get better at whatever it is that you want to do by having these sorts of people around. Right. Well, great. Um, let's. I want to make sure we 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 have a chance to uh, to talk about what. Um, what I see is sort of a, the second order sort of lesson of the book, mm-hmm. um, and and we're we're running running low on time. Um, so uh, the book ends with a chapter about sort of um, a new way of thinking about political philosophy. Throughout the book, there are um, discussions of um, the various ways in which your revisioning of social contract contract theory involves a corresponding revisioning of the tasks of political philosophy. One thing to be emphasized, I suppose, among others, is that um, your version of the social contract theory isn't aiming at producing an agreement on two lexically ordered (laughs) principles of justice, um, that this is a, as you said earlier, sort of we're going to iterate this this process again and again. Um, You uh, at one point say that you think of justice as a social trajectory rather than a state or uh, a condition which the basic structure of a society could realize. Um, uh, And so a lot of this, I think... um, amounts to a, a kind of it's just a different way of thinking about the aims and business of political philosophy. Is that right? Yeah, that is right. So uh, I think that political philosophers have uh, really focused on this idea of an end state where we can, we can come up with some ideal uh, and we can describe that ideal pretty confidently. We know what a society like that would work like and how it would function, and uh, we can foresee relevant consequences. Uh, but also, we're just, we just need to get to that place. And so uh, all we need to do is compare how we are now against that place we want to go. So I think this is wrong for a few reasons. Uh, one reason is I, I think that uh, that ideal is going to be a moving target. Uh, as we learn more about ourselves and technology changes and populations change, uh, there are just going to be new problems and new resources for solutions. And thinking that we can identify an ideal, even if it's an abstract set of uh, principles, I'm, I'm highly skeptical of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it interestingly matches uh, uh, a now dead tradition in economics of, of kind of end state theorizing. Uh, focusing on what happens when the economy is done, uh, when we've reached a steady state where there's no more productivity growth or uh, no further changes, just how do we manage ourselves once we're in that steady state? Uh, that largely died with the Industrial Revolution. Once we realized that uh, we can keep going for quite some time and uh, the economy is going to keep changing and uh, uh, populations and ideas and opportunities are going to shift, uh, we can't describe the economy as a steady state anymore. We have to talk about the dynamics. Right. Uh, and I think that that dynamic idea is just extremely important. Uh, it's, uh, I think, uh, importantly arrogant of philosophers to assume that we can we can identify the principles of justice for all time. Uh, and all we need to do is aim at that thing. Uh, I think that we need to be a lot more humble in what we're doing. We we're not going to be able to, I think, identify the correct set of uh, rules for all time because I don't think that those exist. Uh, but furthermore, even if we could, uh, even if there were such a thing, I don't know if we could identify them. Uh, it's there are too many sources of error that can be that can pop up. We're uh, likely uh, not well informed of all the relevant features that would go into a just society. Uh, we keep coming up with new areas that we hadn't realized uh, were important, and we try to incorporate that as we go. And yet, in our work, we imagine that that's all a solved issue, and we just need to go to this one set of ideals. So I think we should just move away from that. Instead of pretending that we can uh, that there is an end state and we can identify it, uh, and we know uh, what would go into identifying it, let's just acknowledge that we don't know how to do that. Uh, Instead, we can figure out how to learn more. Right? We can figure out what, what's needed 
uh, to generate the kind of resources to figure out our next step. And so this is, I think, uh, uh, rather Millian in flavor, uh, but also kind of Hayekian uh, in flavor. Uh, there's just stuff that we don't know. Uh, it's uh, ridiculous for us to assume that we uh, could pretend to know it right now. And so instead, let's just arrange the, uh, the work that we do to kind of better generate those experiments, to better find out what we're, uh, what we're after, uh, and be able to adjust as we learn new things and the world changes from underneath our feet. Well, that, that sounds to me like a, 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 a good place to stop. <laughs> <Sounds good. laughs> Ryan, um, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. And thank you, listener, uh, for joining us for our discussion. Um, the book is titled Social Contract Theory for a Diverse World Beyond Tolerance. Again, the author is Ryan Muldoon and the publisher is Routledge. Bye for now.